I'm Jamil Smith, and this is The Stakes. This is a special episode. It's a bit more than what we usually do, and there's a good reason for that. On the 25th anniversary of the 1992 LA riots, we were in South Los Angeles, and we asked community members, activists, and students about why and how the events of that day continue to resonate in 2017. But first, we went to the corner store. At the intersection of 81st and Vermont, there's a shop that doesn't sell a thing. It has all the typical corner store goods, bags of chips, candy, a fridge full of drinks. But there's no clerk on duty. Bright white neon halos hang from the ceiling, and massive black and white portraits of three dead black teenagers watch over would-be shoppers from the wall behind the counter. It's a Saturday afternoon, the last day this store is open, and Alberto Ritana is giving us a tour. So I'm going to take you to the front where um, we have the installation called Angels of the Movement, which is essentially connecting the loss of uh, Emmett Till, Latasha Harlins, and Trayvon Martin's deaths. Different decades around a convenience store uh, with someone from outside of the race that spent no time in prison when they got off scotch clean. Alberto was the president and CEO of Community Coalition, an organization that's working to change public policy in South L.A., we developed an exhibit called Reimagine Justice, which is to examine the civil unrest, uh, or as we've called it, the alley uprising, the past, present, and future, what the implications are, and tell, give provocative art to help people think about what happened 25 years ago, but most importantly, to think about the future. You know, we can't reconcile and build transformation without actually healing. It's been 25 years since a not guilty verdict for the police officers who were videotaped beating Rodney King sparked the most violent civil uprising in the history of the United States. We all call it the L.A. riots, but many here consider a rebellion, one that is still ongoing. The issues that fed this neighborhood's anger haven't been forgotten. Day-to-day life in South L.A. is still shaped by a lack of significant economic investment, housing insecurity, environmental pollution, poor access to healthy food and medical care, and the effects of mass incarceration, the school-to-prison pipeline, and South L.A.'s fraught relationship with the LAPD. Today, there are dozens of local organizations working to address those issues. 35 of them have joined forces as a larger umbrella group called South Los Angeles is the Future. Representatives from most of those groups are in the crowd today at FutureFest, a rally and festival commemorating the 25th anniversary of the riots and celebrating a new vision for the community. I'm with Cadre, Community Assets Development Redefining Education. I'm the Executive Director of Physicians for Social Responsibility and a member of the South Los Angeles Building Healthy Communities Coalition. I'm with, an, I'm with several organizations, but one of them is called Ceasefire. The Labor Community Strategy Center, fight for the souls of the city, but at our high school it's called Taking Action. I'm with SCOPE. I'm from uh, Dignity and Power Now, Brothers, Sons, Selves Coalition, and um, Social Justice Learning Institute. The crowd is diverse. Community organizers and activists, families who live in the neighborhood, former gang members, and even people with direct ties to the riots, like Laura and Donetta King, Rodney King's daughter, and his first wife. These women and the rest of the community out to commemorate, if not celebrate, are a big reason why we were there. 25-year anniversaries draw all manner of press, inspire all kinds of documentaries. But these projects are by definition backward-looking. We wanted to talk about South L.A.'s past with the people who live there today and are working to define its present and future. 
let's go back to Alberto Rotana's gallery, where he has displayed artifacts from the riots and encouraged artists to interpret their recollections. One of the last parts of our exhibit is our actual gallery where we had uh, over 50 artists, 80% of which are from South LA, uh, reimagine justice. So we asked them to do different pieces or bring pieces that spoke to what the unrest represents. So the opening piece you walk into is an artist by the name of Ernesto Yerena, who does a lot of immigrant rights art. He takes the image, the famous iconic image from Baton Rouge with the woman confronting the officers in their SWAT gear and in a backdrop of images from the 1992 civil unrest and a American flag on the uh, bottom left hand corner. It's a beautiful piece. Up above us you see shirts. Like, the greatest thing about this exhibit is people just came to drop stuff off when they heard that we were doing it. So these were shirts that were being sold on Crenshaw Boulevard uh, in 92. And uh, this one I, that says uh, LA 92 Triathlon, shoot, scoot, and loot, uh, speaks to sort of what people were thinking about at that time, so, which is pretty cool. And then this, this uh, piece up here in the front of TVs is old televisions playing 1992 pop culture news, music videos, uh, the, the filming of Rodney King's Beating to sort of take us back to what was happening at the time. In the back, in the lot, there's a timeline of the events that led to the unrest to try to educate people, you know, 16,000 people arrested, over 55 people killed, 1,400 uh, were uh, reported to the INS, of which 40% were deported. A lot of people forget that. People forget that this was a rainbow revolt, black, brown, white, everybody was involved. Like the, the, the bullocks on Wilshire in Vermont, white people were looting that store. People were looting a store on Sunset. Um, but people tend to romanticize and I think it was just a black event. It wasn't. Everybody was involved in the Rainbow Revolt of 92. It's just that the, the spark was definitely deeply felt in an acutely oppressed community of the African-American folks in Los Angeles. This idea of a Rainbow Revolt came across when I asked neighborhood residents and community activists about their memories of the riots. But one thing we can't forget, no matter how many different races and cultures were out amidst the unrest, is that this rose out of the anger at injustices done to black people here in Los Angeles. One in particular, actually. Remember that fridge full of drinks at the fake convenience store that I mentioned earlier? It was full of orange juice. That's for Latasha Harlins. Less than two weeks after Rodney King was beaten in 1991, store video captured Harlins, a 15-year-old student, entering a Korean-owned grocery in South Los Angeles. Soon Jadu, the woman behind the counter, accused Latasha of stealing an orange juice. A struggle ensued. It's all caught on tape. And just when you think it's over, Latasha turns to leave. Du shoots her in the back of the head. Du was convicted of voluntary manslaughter, but the judge in the case sentenced her to community service and zero jail time. Now, this is why you can't call them the Rodney King riots. For the people in this neighborhood, they were as much, if not more, about Latasha. At the corner of Florence and Normandy, I catch up with Latasha's aunt, Denise Harlins. She thinks conditions right now are just as bad, if not worse, than they were in 92. But she hopes this community can handle things differently. I want to see us rise to the occasion. That's my hope. That's my prayer. But we seem to follow the, the same line, timeline over and over again, and we don't learn until after the fact. I hope we learn from the 92 riots, like the, 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 the Watts riot. I really hope we learn from that and get involved in, and be a part of um, uplifting our own communities. That uplift may come, but one of the main themes of the day was recollection, naturally. 
Standing there at the corner where it all began, folks couldn't help remembering where they'd been on April 29th, 1992. I was sitting in my living room um, after the verdict of Rodney King. We had a moment of silence and then all of a sudden we had a moment of roaring like a lion, running down the alley, tearing up our businesses. Um, well, first I, I was about 16 years old and I remember running out here, just wanting to be in the chaos and see what happened as soon as it started. Within an hour of it happening, I was out here and uh, I didn't get out and participate because I seen a lot of chaos and it was harmful and a lot of people were getting hurt. A lot of people were being knocked unconscious and just severely hurt. So, you know, I got out of here, but I did see it. I had a visual of it. Um, it was seven days of just just fires burning and, and just hell, just living in a, a state of hell. And everybody was just, it's a lot of madness, you know. That day was just, um, it was a it was an event that was most likely was going to take place sooner before later, you know, due into the situation. But the anger just built everybody up. Uh, and most of the people in my neighborhood, particularly the white folks, were re referring to the Latinos and African-Americans as animals and criminal-like. And that had a huge impact on my psyche and on my uh, self-worth. There was no form of consulting us or any empathy for what had just happened. We always knew that there would be another spark that would light this fire because the things that we've been working on around structural racism, structural unemployment and inequality hadn't changed, right? I came to this country in 1963 uh, and I remember some of my earliest memories are the Watts riots. And so when this happened, I was living on Pico and Western and working at UCLA. And so that drive home as I saw the city burning and people shooting out windows, um, you know, I had just come back from a war zone in Nicaragua, and so it, I saw many Central Americans uh, reacting to the situation because they were through, PT, through the lens of PTSD from their own escape from Central America. And we were sort of erased from that story and that narrative, Central Americans uh, who had been coming to this country for many years because of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and so I think of, you know, the last 25 years I've spent working on social justice issues and, you know, that sense of urgency and impatience is still there, right, that, that lit that spark. And today we're changing that story. We're doing, we're talking about the future here and what we can do together to make it positive and to actually create healthy communities and to deal with environmental racism and uh, uh, policies that incarcerate our youth at higher rates than anyone else. That last voice you heard was Martha Dinarguello the executive director of Physicians for Social Responsibility. It's stories like these we're hearing more and more of. When the riots first happened, the media largely framed the situation as the result of tension between black citizens and white police officers and paid little attention to the root causes of the riots. But as Alberto Ritana said earlier, this was a rainbow revolt. And we're now hearing more stories about the experiences of Korean Americans, Central Americans, and even white people. Here's Alberto from Community Coalition again. I sat down with him in his office to talk more about the work he's doing. He's got a tea kettle, his college degree, and a picture of himself with President Obama. And right next to where we sat, a giant map of South Los Angeles that covered the wall, where street names were clearly visible. 
you know, my old organizer, activist hat has always thought of intersectionality as a united front. How do we bring different communities together to fight and have each other's back and push for what's uh, on behalf, uh, what's the benefit of all our communities? At Community Coalition, we've been uniting African-American and Latino communities for over 25 years around a set of issues and agendas that they care about uh, to both have an independent voice but have an interdependent agenda. So that's ultimately what intersectionality is. How do we meet and build a nexus of power between communities? In this particular case, I'm talking about black and brown, but we also want to do that with men and women, with gay and straight, with cis and trans, and the ability for us to do that now is really exciting because Trump has brought us together in a way we haven't seen before. I want to talk about one other intersection in this city, which is poor and wealthy. Um, how are you reaching out to other communities within the greater Los Angeles area to help you accomplish the goals that really don't affect their community so much, don't affect their kids, but certainly play into you know the overall health of the city? You know, that, that's a really important question. I was at the Science Center, which is a big uh, museum in L.A., and there's a big topogra- topographical map, Google map, overseeing the city. And you have different communities reflected on that map, Beverly Hills. Uh, uh, you have Gardena. You have even Inglewood and Compton. There's a big donut right in the middle. It's empty, and it's South L.A., but they, put, they didn't put South L.A. on it. It has the Science Center on it, but not South L.A., because South L.A. is invisible to the rest of the city. It's almost as if our city is ashamed of this neighborhood uh, that w- that has been a part of uh, our region for years. For me, it's absolutely critical. We can't continue to celebrate the urban renaissance that Los Angeles is going through with all the development happening downtown if we continue to forget South Los Angeles. So for us, it's critical to get the rest of the city involved, the West Side, Hollywood, to think about equity and prioritizing a part of the city that has gone ignored for so many years. You have a lot of groups here that have come together for this event. Can you talk about how you all work together to improve the community? Because I know there could be, you know, potential for people stepping on one another's toes. You know what I mean? Everybody's trying to do good work, but sometimes it's harder for people to work together. It's true. You know, we have a, a, a very exciting uh, coalition of over 30 organizations, some fighting against gentrification, some fighting around police accountability, some fighting around housing rights, others fighting around education uh, rights, organizing youth, residents, uh, homeless populations. So it's a very exciting coalition of folks. And what we decided to do, we've been working together for 20 years, but this is the first time we actually came together, took over uh, Florence and Normandy, shut down Vermont Avenue, a main thoroughfare in LA, uh, and marched together with our members to say, we're not only going to just continue to work in silos, we're going to work as a coalition under Big Tent because the time for intersectionality is now. Trump has already drawn the line. And if we don't come together to build the power we need, he's going to continue to divide our communities and impact uh, our ability to build the kind of world that we need to live in. So coalitions like this in our own neighborhoods isn't just important in South Central Los Angeles. It's important in Ferguson. It's important in the Bronx. It's important in Seattle. It's important in Portland, everywhere. In Memphis, uh, this is the kind of work that needs to happen, and I'm just honored to be a part of it here in L.A. More than a few people gathered at the corner of Florence and Normandy today lived through the 1965 Watts riots, as well as the unrest of 1992. Minister Wayman Baker is one of them. He's a member of Ceasefire, which focuses on ending gang violence and also works with homeless youth. I'm just here to say that uh, the 92 uprising was not too much different from the 65, because they were out there fighting for things that I'm not saying that some things that was done was right, uh, but, but that was the only way of the group of people that were out there 
knew how to get uh, someone to wake up and see what's going on, which it did. I mean, it brought out, uh, in 65, it brought out the Martin Luther King Hospital. It brought jobs up for people. It's, it's a shame you have to go through that, through violence. You know, hopefully we've learned from that uh, and, and make a more positive impact on people now than we did then. But that's how it just jumped off. It, people were mad and angry about things that have already been happening to the neighborhood community where other neighborhoods and community were thriving with everything they need. We were suffering. And so all this stuff came, during the ride came to people and all it needed was a little spark to start a, a flame. After the Watts unrest, Baker was in Houston, Texas for a while. He wasn't gone long before returning to California. When I came back, I got involved with the Black Panthers, you know, got involved with the Black Movement, and got involved with, with gangs during that time too also, you know, which was my way of, of getting back, if you will, because I didn't understand at that time what the true enemy was. And, and, and he hadn't risen his head yet, but I found out between 65 and the day that I had two enemies. First of all, it was poverty for one thing and a prejudice for another thing. We need to wake up. You know, uh, a lot of folks still sleep. We need to wake up and understand who the true enemy is. It's not one individual per se, but it's a whole collective. That's part of what April 29th is in South LA. It's a time to present an image to the world, sure, but it's also a day to reflect upon who they are. For a select few, it's a day to remember exactly what happened to the people you love the most. Don't go near this area, South Central Los Angeles at Florence and Normandy, because there is still no police presence there, and a lot of people trying to get through that intersection have been assaulted with rocks and bottles and sticks. So as long as it's uh, an ongoing situation, you best advise to stay clear. Riots are, they're, they're based off of the unheard. You know, that's like me knocking on your door. Hey, can you move your car? You're parked in front of my house here, and this is my property. That's Laura King, Rodney King's daughter. I keep knocking, I keep knocking, and you just ignore me. You're not even acknowledging me. Then I want to be frustrated. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter if I have control of my anger. I've been nice. I've been nice, and I keep. Now now I'm switching over to the other side, and I, I'm not justifying it because it's not right. But I do understand. Laura was seven years old when her father was beaten by police officers and eight years old when the riots broke out. Every year since then, she and her mother, Donetta King, have been meeting right here on the corner of Florence and Normandy to remember Rodney King and speak about his legacy. I asked Laura what it's like given her experience, to live in a world where a new and horrifying video of police brutality shows up on the internet nearly every day. I think it's a form of conditioning. So when you see it, it's, it, it becomes part of the norm. Oh, you know, so how's dinner? Instead of, oh my God, did you see that? Somebody just got shot and they're dead. And what did they do? No, so they're shooting people. They're killing people. It's not a video game. So yeah, I think, I think that unfortunately the media shows it like it's okay because it's a form of numbing. Here's Donetta, Rodney King's first wife, and Laura's mother. Like with Rodney's video, I can't watch it because it hurts me so bad. So that's why I couldn't understand how they couldn't see it. How you can't see that? It hurts me to watch it. I, can't, I haven't watched it to this day. 
It's hard to accept that video footage of police brutality has become so commonplace, and it's impossible to know how growing up in the shadow of this constant stream of racial violence on our screens will affect future generations. At FutureFest, I had a chance to talk to young activists who have grown up in South L.A. within this new reality to see how the events of the past are informing their view of the present and their vision for the future. Mark Anthony Johnson is the director of health and wellness at the community organization Dignity Empower Now. He looks like he's in his mid-20s, light-skinned with light eyes and blondish dreads. His friend and colleague Laquan Muhammad also works at Dignity Empower Now, as well as the Brothers Sons Selves Coalition and the Social Justice Learning Institute. He looks slightly younger, but significantly taller. Here's Mark Anthony. You know, so... I'm here because, uh, you know, 25 years ago when the 92 rebellions happened, you know, I'm remembering the way it was framed uh, in the media, remembering the way it was framed as, you know, violence, as, as looting, as all those things, and really missing the point um, that there's been a lot of deep frustrations in our communities around uh, the divestment of education, divestment from health, divestment uh, from alternatives to incarceration. And so our organization is here as part of a coalition of organizations that are drawing the connection between all those things. And we're here to say this is our mark 25 years later to say a not enough has changed. And we're putting the county and the city on notice to say you need to invest in South LA as the future of Los Angeles. Well, today I'm here for the investment of the, for the future of Southern Los Angeles. Um, I'm here for the educational system in particular for the youth because they are our future. And um, it starts with the educational system. We have to get more programs, more mental health programs, restorative justice programs, after school programs, so that way our youth become engaged and they actually have fun at school and they really enjoy what they're learning and what they're doing. We have to end the school to prison pipeline and it starts with education. I've seen the need for a leader in my own individual community because I'm from uh, Southeast Los Angeles, a small city called Watts. And I see that we don't have a lot of opportunity and we don't get a lot of exposure to things that we really want to do and so it's no drive and so I want to be that driving for force for my whole community to look up to. When I asked them about whether they think there will be another riot they said that there are still problems but that things are a little different now. I think what you see now is that young people uh, more than I've seen in my lifetime are willing to take things to the streets uh, but are also being very strategic around the country uh, and you know whether it's Ferguson uh, whether it's Baltimore whether it's Chicago uh, young people are directly involved in being very clear that in order to, to bring attention to these issues uh, you have to really be visible uh, when folks in Ferguson were out for uh, over 150 days, you know, in, in those streets. So a lot of those were young people. And so I think for us, um, we don't know if, if there needs to be. We hope there doesn't need to be. Uh, but the way things are going, uh, our folks are willing um, to really take things to the streets and really bring attention uh, to issues that haven't changed enough. I would say the same thing, but like a militant strategic um, uprising. That way, we don't destroy our own communities that we built. I feel like that's the main focus. If we come together and we do things like this, marches and uh, going to the Capitol and really getting out there, engaging with our community and trying to get them all to rise in one occasion that's nonviolent, I feel like we can definitely get our voices heard. Gia London Mack and Monique Jones are high school seniors. 
They've worked on restorative justice and climate change issues and fought a Department of Defense program that would have put military surplus weaponry in the hands of school security officers. We got to talking about what it's like to be a high school student in South LA in 2017, when interactions between students and school authorities can sometimes be as charged and intense as confrontations with the police. For example, like they could have like a lighter at school and they make a big deal about it. Like I have a lighter, but I like candles. I like collecting candles and lighting candles in my room. And like, let's say you accidentally leave it in your backpack. Like you'd be like, hey, I want to try this candle like at the park or something. I know that sounds weird, but it happens. And they make this big deal about it. Oh, that kid, that black kid with blue jeans in room 305 has a lighter, go get them. Or if they have weed, like they purposely put handcuffs on them and walk them to the office, like this walk of shame. But when they get in the office, they take the handcuffs off them. So it's like you're doing damage. You're trying to ruin somebody's reputation and break their pride over something small. You could have easily had counseling with them about or informed their parents. You don't have to do all that and embarrass that child. So tell us a little, I mean, obviously as young people, you know, you're all out, you're out here, you're involved. Tell us a little bit about what your peers are doing or how do you feel like your peers are getting involved in this community? Are they involved enough or what, should they be out here a little bit more? Um, I believe that we are the next generation. We are the generation that's gonna make a huge difference. But I feel like there's not enough black and brown youth leaders. Um, we should be in the forefront of the fight, not the back row, not in the back waiting for things to happen, but we should start those things. So I think that we should, uh, youth should be more out there, more getting involved with different organizations and organizing the people and informing not um, only other youth, but adults about things that adults don't know. Like I feel adults know a lot of things and we can learn from them, but there's some things that youth know that adults won't understand because it's a different time. What are some of those things you feel like? Um, like, for example, back then, like when Rodney King happened, it was the first ever recorded police brutality on a black male. So, pe people now don't know about tech, like technology like that. They didn't have phones back then. We do now. Social media is a big thing and a big scope today. And I feel like that is something we could reach out to the, the rest of the world um, by using social media like Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And older folks don't know about those things. So. Right. They don't understand the power of Facebook, uh -huh. Periscope, Twitter, all these different mediums by which, you know, this stuff is being disseminated. Because we feel like we see a beating, you know, or killing every other day on the news. I mean, it's so many... Rodney King videos just being like, you know, in our Twitter feeds and whatnot. Do you feel like, yeah, do you feel like that's normalizing it or what effect do you feel like that's having on our culture? I feel like when it comes to black and brown people, we have labels. Like if you're not in like the hip hop world or the music world, or if you're not like a sports player, you really don't matter. You're average, you're nothing. That's why when people get scholarships, they be like zooming out of here. They be ready to go. And when it comes down to it, it's like we're here, we have to support each other and be here for each other. And we need to stop being ignorant to what's going on around us because people shouldn't be dying like that. People don't get shot in Beverly Hills like that. They don't even get hit by cars. Um, I want to share something. When, um, I was talking to one of our organizers and she was saying how, how it was a norm for you to lose someone so young. but. That's not normal in other people's worlds. When you're black and brown, you have you 
you're da daily you're dealing with something and it's like there's always a stronghold and it's not normal to see somebody being brutalized on social media it's not normal so we need to stop get out the mindset of things being normal and start building towards changing those things here are mark anthony johnson and laquan muhammad again I would say that there are organizations all over the country that are waiting for your leadership. You know, if you look at the movement for black lives, uh, you can see organizations everywhere that are part of that network. You can look at Black Lives Matter, Black Youth uh, Project 100, so many uh, brilliant organizations that are out here bringing young folks into the fold. Uh, and so they're waiting for your leadership. Dignity and Power Now is working with young folks in high school level who are changing the county, uh, the deadliest county in the country when it comes to law enforcement violence. And so we're here uh, to make those changes. Any individual need that you see either in your school, in your own community, and you can start there. You can start your own coalition. You could be a part of coalitions. Just have the mindset to make change. Activism is about survival, of course. Gia and Monique, still in high school, want to make sure that while we remember the riots, we don't forget to address the everyday concerns of the community where they began. Um, I would probably say to the younger people my age, when you get old enough to realize that you have options, you can reach wherever you want to reach. Still have the same mentality as you did when you was a kid. Astronaut, magician, mermaid, whatever. You can do anything you want to do as long as you work hard for it. Don't come outside every day and look at where you are and think, I'm going to be here forever. Because if you do, you will be here forever. And that's the last thing you want to do is you want to grow and prosper and then come back and give to your community. You don't want to stay here and be like everybody else. We got to be out here and look towards the future, towards the horizon. What's going to fix this? Um, it's important for me to come back to my community because, to be honest, our community don't have the resources that other communities have. So taking, going to get knowledge from somewhere else and bringing it back, I feel like it will help the community prosper in a way that we can't do if we don't come back and help our community. We have dreams, we have goals and ambitions. We work together, we walk these streets to fight together. We wanna get jobs without our names being associated with our race. Like, oh, they're, um, they're Johnson, no, they're probably black. We don't need no more black people. They're Lopez, they're probably Hispanic. We don't need no more Hispanic people. Like, it's been so many times I got jobs and as soon as I come up, I know I'm not gonna get the job. As soon as they see my face, I get an interview and everything. As soon as they see my face, I know I'm not gonna get it by the reaction. And we're here to show that we're more than our skin color, we're more than our outer appearance, and we're more than this community. We are a whole, we are a heart, we are functioning. We don't always have good moments, but we will function. So much hasn't changed since April 29th, 1992. One good thing that remains the same is that communities like South Los Angeles continue to make it known that they will no longer stand for unfair treatment under the law. The L.A. riots expressed that sentiment through violence and upheaval. Will it happen again? More than half of all Angelinos surveyed by the L.A. Times believe that another similar riot is likely within the next five years. For those in power, it seems that the wise thing to do is to listen to the young people who are now taking up and leading this fight for justice and equality, to understand their lives and work honestly to make them better. A city shouldn't have to burn for their stories to be believed. I'm Jamil Smith, and this is The Stakes. The Stakes. 
This episode of The Stakes was produced by Mukta Mohan, Alex Papadimus, Michael Catano, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. <laughs>